Welcome to the third special episode of Startups Around the World. My name is Alina. And I'm Kate, and we hope that you had amazing holidays this winter, and despite the whole pandemic situation, and that you're also waiting for the borders to be open again and start traveling, just like we hope a lot. Um, and obviously, we hope that you are also planning to scale your companies to the new markets once everything is settled. Yeah, that's true. Traveling is on everyone's wish list now. And I'm sure our guest for this episode is also longing for travels, right, Sebastian? Yeah, absolutely. Think like all of us. Hi, both. So uh, let me introduce our guest today. We have Sebastian Tofi, the previously known as the startup guy from the Next Web, which is one of the top global tech media and startup conferences that is happening in Amsterdam normally. And Sebastian could be met pretty much at every single meaningful startup events around the world. Uh, at least that's how we met. And well, without any further ado, would you please tell us a bit more about what we are doing back then in the last couple of uh, years that you spent at the TNW? Yeah, of course. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for, for having me today. So yeah, my name is Sebastian Tupi. Uh, I used to work at The Next Web for the past five years where I was in charge of startups. And basically my goal was simple. It was to help founders to connect with investors, mentors, and corporates from our global European ecosystem um, and really facilitate uh, connections for raising investment as well as building proof of concepts with, uh, with larger organizations and do everything that I can to, to help those founders build successful companies. Uh, I started in, in the business, uh, so back in early 2016, uh, working in the events department, as you've mentioned, which is one of the largest tech conferences in Europe. So in the last edition, we welcome about 20,000 attendees uh, to our event. Unfortunately, had to move digital uh, due to COVID, but uh, still, uh, still a pretty big conference. And then the last couple of years, I spent a lot more time on the corporate innovation side of things, really working with, uh, with as mentioned, large corporates and big household names that are trying to solve some of their big issues uh, and big internal problems by using startups uh, and, their, uh, and their technologies. And, uh, and facilitating access for, for those people. Nice. And you should have a very broad understanding of what's going on in startup lives in various regions of the world. So for our first episodes, we had a chance to speak with the founders from Georgia, which is the country in the South Caucasus, and from Mexico. They shared some insights about their local tech startup ecosystems and in their particular cities and i wonder what could you say on top of that about uh let's say georgia because i personally know you've been there and spoke to some of the founders there so would you like to share something from your point of view about georgian ecosystem for scaling the businesses yeah, certainly um i was the you know i had the pleasure to to be there for uh, for tech touch uh, digital touch a couple of years back uh, when when we met with uh, with Kate as well and uh, I was really sort of struck by uh, by some of the founders that I that I met during the during the conference especially during the pitch competition realizing that the infrastructure for some of the businesses in Georgia uh, might not be sort of quite at the same level as what it is for the rest of Western Europe 
Um, and in this case, really seeing that innovation is a lot more zero to one than it is sort of incremental improvement like we see in some other parts. Um, seeing that those founders have to deal with infrastructures that are not quite built or that are very inefficient. They have to be incredibly creative when it comes to how they're building their businesses. And so we saw some really interesting business models from some of those founders, uh, arguably earlier stage companies than what I've seen in, in the rest of Europe or, or in other markets. Uh, so I think a lot of sort of uh, early stage ideas that really need development to be able to scale and to, to get to other markets in the region, but very, very interesting ideas and very hungry founders, if I could say, uh, if I could say that big ambitions, big dreams, and sort of looking for how they should connect with the right stakeholders in order to, to take their business forward. So I saw a lot of potential, uh, definitely a big support system needed as you don't really have a lot of uh, corporate innovation or massive VCs that are that are in the region just yet. But as soon as they can start to attract uh, attention from uh, from some of those uh, stakeholders, I think there's a lot of potential from uh, from Georgian founders. That's true. And actually, um, I might add here that uh, when you were at Touch Conference back in 2019, oh my God, it was already like two years ago. One and a half, <laughs> one and a half. Yes, one half. Okay, all right. <laughs> so uh, there we actually also had Armenian startups. And so you could like have a little bit of overview of our small region here. Yeah. Yeah, not all of it, unfortunately, but at least a good part of it. All right. That's a very good actually um, insight, I would say, because, you know, even though I'm also still new to this, country into this region but i've been already around for like two and a half years speaking with people here and there uh, but your view was quite a fresh one and more global i'd say because you had a chance to see much more other ecosystems before that very cool mm, yeah it is and uh, actually i i think the same because uh, well well, the first time when I got to Georgia, which was, well, pretty much the same conference at the same time, one and a half years ago, not two years ago, um, it was really surprising how uh, Georgia had so many startups with so much potential. You just didn't know how to how to scale it. And I really hope that it's going to change soon. But, well, we talked about it in, on our first episode, and I'm still, like, going forward with that point of view of mine that Georgia has to somehow scale up and just find ways to exit and make sure that world knows that there is an amazing country with amazing uh, specialists and entrepreneurs. And well, uh, media on one side and startups on the other side. Uh, Sebastian, you might know a bit more now about the current trends in the venture world that are pretty interesting. So if we're talking, for example, about Europe, uh, there are developed countries and emerging markets. How do you think the capitals, uh, capital is moving around this diverse area? It's moving really fast and, and the amount of capital that's moving is increasing drastically. It's, it's funny you mentioned this question now. I was just reading yesterday a post by Robin Valters from tech.eu that was uh, doing a little bit of a summary here as we're now early February. Um, 
about the uh, sort of capital that's been invested in the European tech space in, in 2020, as well as in the first month of 2021. And it's through the roof, like the number of deals have been skyrocketing. I think if we see that the number of deals under 50 million, they've doubled between January 2019 and January 2021. Like we went from 15 deals of under 50 million to 30 deals, 33 deals, I think. And we also gotten uh, more than from six to 15 deals over a hundred million, meaning that the mega rounds that we were only dreaming about a few years ago in Europe compared to what's been happening in the US are actually coming in finally. And we see a lot of companies raising just ridiculous amount of money like UiPath from Romania that just raised 750 million pre-IPO this year. So I think oh, wow. on the one hand, we see insane amount of money being invested in Europe and that's still growing. Despite the pandemic in 2020, it's been growing. Um, and then we see uh, the number of rounds like accelerating as well. So uh, from what you've been observing, um, can you like distinct which uh, currents of uh, startups are getting more investments right now? Let's say are they are in a travel tech or in a fintech. So which startups are like, booming right now? I think fintech is still the fastest growing one at this point. Like uh, in the Atomico State of European Tech report, uh, end of last year, it was it was shown that it's still a large majority of the investment in Europe. But there's other things that are definitely up and coming. SaaS is growing massively, not just in Europe but everywhere around the world. So I think that business model is really, uh, you know, uh, has a strong hold now, and we can see that there's a lot of traction. But there's other things where, you know, when we're looking into cybersecurity, when we're looking into digital healthcare, uh, those sectors are all growing massively. So I think we will see other trends emerging in, in the future and sort of like uh, industries in which Europe wasn't historically very uh, predominant. That's going to that's gonna come up. But at this point, I think fintech and SaaS are still on top. Okay, that sounds interesting. What are the biggest deals in let's say, emerging part of Europe, yes, Central, Eastern Europe, Balkans, Baltics, what are the biggest deals uh, that were, like, I'd say not deals, like rounds closed in the last 12 months that are, like, on top of your mind and that are, you know, like, the most significant, let's say, for the development and acceleration of the venture capital growth in Europe? Yeah, I think the one I was just mentioning now that like, just happened to to close here in January from uh, from Romania, uh, a UI path in this case slash you know Ukraine uh, is uh, sorry Ukraine uh, UI path mm -hmm. not Romania um, is very very significant just to show that the ecosystem is is growing really fast there, um, but that also. Uh, we can have those kind of mega rounds happening in Europe. I think we've seen around the Nordics that Volt just raised 350 million and Bolt in Tallinn, Estonia raised a couple of times 100 million in 2020 and another 150 million now, uh, really making it, you know, one of the massive uh, growing unicorns in Europe that's hiring incredibly fast. I saw this morning that Bolt has currently 272 positions open. So they're hiring like crazy. And I think that really shows that there is an appetite for more people relocating from all around the world to a small place like Tallinn, Estonia, um, to actually build like really exciting tech companies. TransferWise is growing massively and we're talking about uh, sort of like IPO. There's a lot of companies in the UK as well. Um, 
when it comes to uh, sort of the more emerging markets or Eastern Europe slash Southern Europe, uh, we've seen that uh, Greece, you know, Venture Friends just raised around a few months ago. Uh, the guys from Launch Hub uh, Ventures in Bulgaria just launched an 85 million euro fund, which for the region is massive, uh, arguably the largest fund uh, in, in Southern Europe uh, and then planning to expand in all of the neighboring countries, making investments down there. So we see that on, on the Western European front, uh, London is still leading with, uh, with Stockholm uh, being up there as well in terms of amounts of investment with, with massive companies being built. You know, Klarna uh, with their latest round is now a valuation of 10 billion euros, which is massive. Um, but then we also see that there's more and more uh, companies in, in developing European markets um, that are growing as well and catching up and want to showcase that the talent is there. They've got a lot of really talented developers. I think Kate and I were talking about this uh, when, we, when we first met, uh, that there's a lot of really good tech talent in Europe that can certainly rival what we have in the United States. Um, and there's more and more people that are becoming interested in this. Mm -hmm. I also uh, saw a news, somebody was uh, publishing this on Facebook, I think that's just from Facebook feed, uh, that Revolut and Lyft uh, opened a list of vacancies in Kyiv via their LinkedIn pages, meaning that Revolut and Lyft are coming to Ukrainian market probably or opening the office there, but there were no major news about this. Yeah, that's Maybe you, good, uh... you heard anything? No, I actually haven't, but it it doesn't really surprise me. I think when I see what's happening on the on the developer stage, you know, there's a lot more interest in what's happening in Ukraine, uh, also in Russia, uh, I think, and uh, and there's a lot of talented people there that are you know just asking for uh, for good projects to work on. So it, it doesn't really surprise me. Well, uh, that's true. Yeah, Revolut actually, like, they do also have a lot of posting that they are looking for people to work in Russia, although in the very, very beginning, they were pretty much banned from Russia. They were, like, they were asked to leave because they were not giving any space to work. And even up to now, it is very hard to obtain um, an account in Revolut if, you're ju if you just have Russian documents. So it's uh, very interesting how they're still, like, now they're planning to get people to work from Russia. I think it's mostly not because, at least in the case of Russia, I don't know about Ukraine, but in Russia, most likely, it's uh, they're planning to get the people who can work amazingly for less money so they can work for the rest of the countries um, mm -hmm. i don't know probably that would be good to ask the ceo of revolut one day um mm -hmm. but it would be yeah it would be great if they would like start entering the markets like russia and ukraine because there is a huge potential and this is something that is very much needed plus People in Russia and Ukraine really like we do have a lot of amazing specialists who are willing to do an enormous amount of work for just uh, for just a chip of a price. So it's like for everyone who's listening to this, just like if you need someone related to IT, just go to that countries and also to Georgia. Okay, just go there and get get <laughs> people who can do something. And Belarus. Yeah. Belarus has amazing tech specialists and also tech leaders, by the way. And their design scene is also growing. I really liked all their like attitude uh, towards some new products in terms of events, videos, commercials. They were really cool. And I hope they will be even better after all these things get better in their country. 
by the way, yeah, um, with regards to the emerging markets uh, closed rounds and uh, new investment monies coming in, uh, the face up from Ukraine has surprisingly closed the round with, guess whom, Anderson Horowitz. I always seemed Anderson Horowitz as really the top VC in the world. And I, I could even imagine that they would one day come to at least our part of the world, but then boom, and they are investing in a Ukrainian startup in the mobile app. <laughs> what yeah. do you think about that? <laughs> I think that you're way too excited about it. Like it's your own thing. <laughs> I think it's really exciting, and, and it's a it's a great time for for Europe and for European founders to show what they can do. I think in in a world where we're working more remote than ever, and and in this case, if I can say thanks to COVID, where investors are willing to actually. Uh, jump on a on a Zoom call and discuss things with founders. Actually, closing deals without meeting in person, um, it's becoming an opportunity for a lot of those uh, of those founders to to connect with uh, with VCs from all around the world. And I think the American VCs are realizing that investing early also makes sense. You end up keeping a bigger share of the pie than only being invested at you know Series A, Series B, or later, uh, where sort of the upside is is lower. And, uh, and they're trying to enter the European market, seeing that there's just a lot of great deals to, to be made here. Um, very recently, we've seen that uh, Sequoia is opening an office in Europe uh, and, and sort of poached uh, Luciana uh, from Axel to, to be leading that office with, uh, I believe, one of the uh, execs from Revolut, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, and in this case, uh, you know, you can see that some of the bigger household names are actually coming over to Europe. I've heard that Bessemer has been doing investments in Europe for a long time. And though they don't have an official sort of office or presence, it's probably just a matter of time until they do. So, yeah, I, I find it really cool that some of those big American VCs are coming here. I'm just curious to see what the dynamic is going to be with some of the more prominent European VCs and, and how that's going to sort of uh, intensify the the battle for for the great deals i heard from some of the local vcs that uh guys invest now look for good deals now until these big foreign guys came to your market because then you will be doomed and that's actually you know like the other side when the, I don't know, Sequoia, Andresen Horowitz, Axel and so on and so forth will come to European markets and especially to our part, which is really cool. But again, on the other side, the local VC funds that are just, you know, they just started uh, their operations and what will happen to them then? Yeah, it's a very good question. I have to say, I don't have the answer. The answer to that, I'm I'm just curious to see how the competition, their knowledge of the market, is going to play a role, like the connection that they have, uh, and whether it is just going to be about the finances and, and and sort of the rounds, or whether there's other things that are going to come at play. Um, it was interesting to hear an interview from from the CEO of Klarna that was actually talking about the fact that even though they had Sequoia as an investor because they wanted to make a mark and show to the rest of the world, you know, more than 10 years ago now when they started that they were a tech company and that they weren't just sort of a, a, a payment solution uh, in this case. Um, 
that that they sort of wish they would have been able to go to a European investor and raise money from them. And later on, they actually raised from Atomico that was just started uh, by Nicolas Zenström, but there wasn't any of those big guys. And now you see much bigger European players that have the funding as well. And a lot of founders that are interested to actually stick to European investors and to work in Europe that don't have any interest in relocating to the US, even though they might have clients in the US, but they want to keep their company in Europe. So I'm curious to see what the, the dynamic that's going to have. I think if it's just for the size of the checks, the US VCs have probably a lot more money than a lot of the European ones. But if there's other things that matter to the founders, then I think the, the European uh, VCs might still have you know their cards to play. Hmm. I, I think that they will be kind of sharing the risk. As, as you mentioned, that the local VCs and angels, they usually have much more... Uh, inside knowledge what's going on right here who are these people who are these founders are they credible enough are they uh, executive enough uh, are they really ambitious to put money in them and so maybe there will be more like shared risk that uh, american or i don't know japanese wherever vc funds will be just investing co-investing together with yeah. european local investors yeah, I think having having seen a lot of, of pretty cool founders and great companies being built lately, you also see that those founders um, sort of are able to attract some really good angel at early stage and often angels that are ex-startup uh, founders themselves and therefore mm. can make the introductions to other VCs. So I, I have seen a lot of collaborations and co-investment when it comes to you know bringing great angels first and then collaborations between VCs that can add complementary skills and, and value to the table, not just capital. Mm -hmm. I presume there should be some new kind of companies emerging in our part of the world that will be, you know, uniting together angels and VC investors <laughs> to close the rounds. <laughs> Perhaps the new niche. Hopefully. <laughs> so, um, do you think there, well, when we're talking about like the investments, there's also like uh, sometimes a huge support from the government for the startups. Uh, is it still like an existing thing? Like uh, there are a lot of countries where this just doesn't exist at all. Uh, do you, can you think about any examples where this model can work, that the government actually like supports startups, gets their own funds to help the most interesting companies to lend off? Yeah, I think it's still definitely a thing and I think it takes, you know, place in, in different forms. So one, one of the ones that I've seen a lot of, of good companies from the Netherlands, particularly where I was based, using are some of the, the grants that are available by both sort of national governments as well as the European Union. So there's a few really good EU grants for scale-ups that were up to 2 million euros that some startups could apply for. Of course, there's a huge selection process involved and it's not that easy to, to land, but for some really good companies, it, it's an opportunity. I know that that's what really helped to kickstart a company called Connectera that launched one of the EU grants and then ended up working with Google and had a lot of really good partners for an IoT solution. Um, but, but that's quite common. So I think uh, looking into both national tenders as well as EU-wide grants is something that we're lucky to have in Europe. I'm not sure it's that prominent in other parts of the world, but for us, luckily, uh, it, it is a thing. And when it comes to sort of um, more wide support, not on, on the one particular startup level, we have a lot of uh, European 
governmental agencies that are promoting innovation and, and startups within different countries. In the Netherlands, it's called TechLeap. In, in France, it's called La French Tech. Uh, you know, they've got startups Estonia, startups Spain, startup Lithuania, I could name all of them. I think most of the European countries have one such agency that's really sort of promoting the uh, growth of innovation and entrepreneurship within the countries. And they of often have acceleration programs, incubation uh, hubs, and sort of different mentoring uh, sessions that are available for founders to, uh, to help them grow. And I think that's a really important part of supporting the ecosystem. Like this collaboration between public and private has been really helpful, I think, for founders, at least for the ones that I've spoken to. Um, and facilitating access to a network uh, of individuals that can also help fund those companies from angels to early stage VCs that are quite close to all of the events happening within those ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it's actually, yeah, it's very interesting because I also know like a handful of people who, this is like, this is going to be a tricky one, so bear with me. So I know sure. a handful of people uh, who are, who have like great ideas. They are like planning to launch their own startups. They like, they go forward with it and then like bam and they fail. So one of the most like common mistakes that I've seen is that people have the idea first without like even like creating a startup. So the legal entity, they just go forward to the investor and basically they're just failing because they don't have anything else but the idea. So do you think this like this scenario that someone just pitching the idea and then just like creating something on top of it might work out in like nowadays with what we have or no? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I'm not so sure if, if the issue is really about having the idea just building from there versus registering an entity or a company. I think there's lots of businesses that, that didn't need anything more than, than customers to get started without even having a name. I think uh, as Jeff Bezos was just a sounding, uh, sorry, um, uh, announcing that he's stepping down from Amazon, Amazon wasn't called Amazon when it started. I don't even think it had a name. Um, so I don't think that, that having the name or the fully flushed out business model matters. I do think that having an idea that people can rally behind and that clients are willing to pay for is key. So whether the registration is done, um, I don't know if it matters that much. It's something that's really easy to do these days and can be done online in most cases in a few hours. I think having a customer base that sees the problem you're trying to solve and sort of is willing to pay for it is the most important part. And there I completely agree with you that a lot of startups are just running with an idea with with sort of a very little understanding of who's actually going to pay for it and how much they'd be willing to pay. So pretty much I think that this episode of our podcast we can sell for money for everyone who like who is looking for some information <laughs> about funding and investments. Um. You know, that there is also the other side. Um, I'm quite a cultural studies uh, person today. I'm putting everything on the question. <laughs> so there is also the other side of the governmental support. So you see when... Um, the right couple of options of getting free money grants from the government yeah. uh, too many pe people are just coming to get this money they are not thinking about solving any anyone's problems they are not thinking about their product they are not thinking about scaling they are just coming and taking money out of the pockets of those who should really get them so for instance um uh, 
like two startups are coming to pitch in front of some independent jury that was invited by this governmental agency that's going to give a grant of let's say 100k dollars whatever and one startup is very good in presenting skills yeah but they have not more than just an idea and i don't know maybe some mock-up they've created with the help of some designer or uh, no code tools online or whatever but basically they have nothing but a good presentation and then there is a second startup who is a little bit shy humble they are not really good in speaking publicly but they might have like a couple of cool engineers and some of them might uh be able to have a good strategical thinking and maybe they could succeed if they would bring this money in and so then the question if the jury is independent that means they're not putting their money into these startups that means they don't actually care and so then they might give money to those who present well yeah, it's a it's a really big issue. Uh, I, I think the the one that I've seen in in the European ecosystem is is slightly different, but very relevant to what you were mentioning. Where often the applications for those grants is very lengthy, so it's a very detailed and long applications to fill in with sort of very specific language that you need to use to fit the requirements of an institution like the European Union. And on, and then often it's it you know it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to build this and it's not always the the smartest idea or the best solutions that end up getting them but the ones who are able to write the grants most successfully which very much correlates to what you were talking about now. Um, there's a few we, we we discussed this issue with uh, with different members from uh, from the entrepreneurial network in the Netherlands and addressed it directly with people that are running those grants at the European Union. I mentioned tech.eu earlier, the publication that's been actually addressed by one of their writers directly to the EU. And the solution mm -hmm. that they had was build a board of advisors that's composed of people that are working in the ecosystem, whether they're founders, accelerator leaders, people that work as investors, both angels and VCs, and actually create this sort of selection board and, and review board for the applications of people that have been spending their careers working in the ecosystem. And that will be essentially less biased to the wordiness of the applications, but more caring about the actual technology in the teams. So I think that's one way of going about it is to actually make sure that the people you're selecting to check who's going to get those grants are the right individuals that will be doing it in a sort of a passionate and objective way. And then the other side would be to have a system that is not just based on application from people that are keeping an eye out for whenever those organizations have money to spend, but more having sort of a, a referral system where people that care about the ecosystem would be able to potentially nominate some really good startups that would deserve to have the funding or that meet a certain types of criteria that would normally not care about the grants or wouldn't want to spend the time to do this and then be able to enroll them into, into the application and then run it on an interview based uh, first before having to actually write the whole application to increase chances that some of the great companies will will get the funding. So I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done on that front. And, and there's not a, an easy solution to, to just be implemented, but there's different things that we can certainly put in place to make it more fair, more objective. And also, as you, as you rightfully uh, mentioned, that they're the companies that need it the most that end up getting that money, which often 
they would be busy building their companies instead of just trying to look for grant money. And the ones who are looking for grant money are not often the ones that should be getting it because they're probably not going to be building the greatest company. But but then, you know, um, there are also different situations in different countries, different ecosystems. And well, sometimes founders that are pretty fresh and also pretty young, they just don't know about alternative ways. They, yeah. they think that without this initial funding, they will never succeed. That's because they were just, you know, kind of taught to move in this particular way. They don't understand, they don't know about maybe all these low-code, no-code available tools. Yeah. They don't know about things like, uh, we've been speaking a lot in touch, for instance, that IBM gives a lot of credits Credit. for you to build your pro product on their cloud infrastructure for free. Same with Amazon Web Services, same with Scaleway. Uh, which uh, Pascal was speaking about. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there are also sales and marketing gurus who is giving away free courses with a lot of inside information. I mean, HubSpot. Yeah. They're doing a lot of work in providing just free knowledge about everything in marketing, in sales, uh, in customer uh, success as well. And it's all available for free to startups. And also their platform's basic features are also available for free to basically everyone. And same with Zendesk. If you need a good customer service yeah. for free to test out your first hundred clients, just go and take it. And I don't know, like, I, th I think governments should, first of all, communicate better about opportunities rather than giving away money. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And and I do think that, that some are trying and it's working, you know, more or less well, depending on, on the government we're talking about. As I said, the, the Netherlands is, mm -hmm. is working on, on doing something like this up until today, actually. Uh, there's a summit that's running online uh, for three days uh, called the Tech Leap Summit, where the main governmental agency is promoting uh, all of this they've invited a lot of different uh, investors like uh, sort of business leaders people that have exited companies before to share knowledge for three days online and to be able to give access to all of those tools mm -hmm. they're running continuously programs and boot camps to help founders and sort of facilitate access for them uh, to individuals that they would not be able to speak to otherwise and also providing sort of toolkits and discount uh, sort of packages with all of their services in one that are allowing founders to uh, to start to start up with uh, with all of those uh, sort of uh, services for free or heavily discounted up until they start generating revenue. So yeah, I, I think it's very much needed. I love that all those companies are sort of attracting startups that way and facilitating the early access up until they start making significant money and can pay for the fully uh, developed service. But it's definitely something that we need to uh, to push forward and that more governments should be doing. Well, this online summit sounds like something that is, well, way more interesting <laughs> than everything else I have attended last year. Obviously not including Touch Summit, that's for sure. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, uh, like, in my... And couch conferences, uh, sure. where Sebastian was speaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So, uh, basically, like in my case, it was a huge disappointment last year that we had to switch all this like conference uh, meetups and everything to the online. Um, obviously, from one side, it was really nice because you just you get up from your bed or you're just not even leaving your bed uh, and you're just talking-ish to people. But I found it a bit boring because you, you like you know there is no thrill. Like, you, you cannot just come up to a person and, like, ask him or her, what are they doing? Or, like, grab wine with them at the bar just because, like, you know, you saw them in the evening after the conference and you'd be like, oh, hey, I saw you there. Like, what do you think about that and that and that? And then, like, you know, you just go on and talk about it. But, like, even when you speak to people, like, if you're, like, speaking uh, on a conference, it's also, like, it's not the same. You're missing this, like, the thrill especially for those speakers who, like, have the jitters before they go on stage. Uh, obviously, for them, probably is good, but who doesn't like the bit of a thrill? Um, so, I don't know. Uh, what do you think about this? Like, how do you think this the online business conferences, like, changed the ecosystem in Europe over the last year? I think it's been really difficult for a lot of people that were that were involved in that industry. I, I would very much agree with the fact that it, it has been a different experience and for a lot of people, not particularly a, a very pleasant one to not be able to interact face to face, to enjoy all the networking and all of the sort of like social aspect of conferences, aside from the purely business aspect of it. Uh, so that's been, I think, quite difficult for for a lot of individuals. At the same time, it still gave the opportunity to to be meeting people and to actually uh, sort of have uh, some of those interactions to to a lesser extent and being able to to connect without uh, sort of being able to see each other. I think it's just been incredibly difficult for the conference organizer to come up with concepts and activities that would. Uh, replace what we used to do. I can speak for the people at the next web in saying that a lot of our value add was really coming from the interaction that we were able to bring to small groups of people, dedicated subset of our attendees that were coming for specific summits and dinners and like, you know, uh, after parties and things like this. And then once we could mm -hmm. only stick to our guns with the content, it's, uh, it's a lot more difficult to attract people. Luckily, TNW has always been a, a sort of speaker first conference, meaning that a lot of our attendees were coming for content. So for us, we still had a good user base that wanted to be there. And luckily, we were able to get some great speakers because now they didn't have to travel to Amsterdam. We, they could actually you know, stay from the comfort of their own homes. So we were able to secure some great speakers at the conference, but it's not going to replace what we were doing physically. And I think that for us was the big realization is it's a good alternative. It will serve a purpose for a while of being able to still communicate, stay top of mind, be present in the ecosystem and have some kind of touch point or, intera or interaction, sorry. But it's not going to replace the kind of physical conferences that we were doing. Um, and I'm very curious to see what 2021 will bring when it comes to online events, as I do think that it can only ever be complementary to other activities and that hopefully people will be able to build hybrid models where some you know percentage of the attendee group can gather physically uh you know with the safe social distancing and masks while the rest can can live stream um but i really hope it doesn't last for for too long because if we're still in the same situation in sort of 2022 uh, or beyond then uh, i'm really worried for the future of the tech industry 
already this year, I know that there's a lot of conferences that won't be able to renew just because financially speaking, it didn't make sense for them. Uh, and staff wise, they've had to cut down, you know, big time. And I'm really curious to see what, what that's going to what that's going to lead to. And it's not just related to the tech world. I think it's related to the, the conference and event world as a whole. Um, we've got one big venue in Amsterdam that's welcoming just over 100,000 people a day that was fully booked out for 2021. Every single day of the year, it was going to be their biggest year ever. And, uh, and obviously, sorry, 2020, and they had to cancel every single event and fire more than 90% of their staff. So. For them, it's uh, it's a massive blow, and it's not looking any better in the coming months. Yeah, there was uh, one Lithuanian startup that turned British at some point uh, ago that uh, they used to work on this model where they were creating this um, hologram chat rooms, basically like uh, there's like a something between virtual and augmented reality where you just put on your goggles and the room yeah. turns into this like uh, virtual like chat room where you can like talk to other people who also like enter this room so um, I'm not sure if they still exist uh, but um, another company that is similar uh, they pretty much they, they come from Singapore uh, they posted that now it's like now is the time for this kind of technologies and they're planning to launch some of the conferences like this and i still think that that's probably not going to work because this like a physical real touch to the conferences and events is really missing and i truly hope that um this year would be able to visit at least one conference like at least in the end of the year let's say maybe like in october november somewhere in georgia would be good <laughs> Or late September, we'll see. Okay, it's like late September also works for me. So uh, as long as like we're pretty safe, I'm pretty sure that people now like uh, realizing how difficult the situation is, how stressful and how cautious everyone is, like people will be keeping their distance and everything. So even if there would be some physical conferences, there would be some extra measures taken and uh people would be like very like afraid of like you know going around shaking hands but i'm really hoping that it will go back and that we won't have to wait until what did you say sebastian 2022 more or less no that 2020 yeah i really hope that we're not gonna wait for that long because otherwise it just it, it's going to be difficult like for everyone especially those who work in marketing sales partnerships uh so it's super difficult to conduct everything they do normally on conferences meetings uh do it online because when you know in reality when you just bond with a person you actually like you know just by having a dinner or a drink or something you can find like you know the way how you can cooperate with a person and it's pretty much like you know uh human interactions 101 just treat the person as a human being bef before you treat them like as a sales point and this is like what we don't have now and it's killing me like even me personally like i just cannot do it anymore i really need to go and like grab someone with someone but i cannot because like even now like i'm in portugal and we have this very strict lockdown when we're not even allowed to cross uh the like imaginary border to the next uh, council that we have here on weekends like traveling in the country is prohibited on the weekends because everything is going very badly so let's just we're just like basically just the, the cry for help that just like please take me out of here like i want to go somewhere where COVID is not so bad <laughs> um so uh to sum it up like let's hope that it's going to be much better very soon 
And I think I will uh, slowly come to the last question to Sebastian for today's podcast. Um, we asked about governmental support and how much does it help or not help to startup development and the ecosystem development in, in, in general. And the question is, how is it going with the private sector support? For uh, as far as I know, the first coolest accelerators in Europe were actually supported by private companies, right? So Deutsche Telekom, uh, their logo was on many of the accelerators and other programs. Uh, then there is uh, Skoda Lab in Czechia, in Czech Republic and um, Barclays Accelerator in the UK and yeah. in Israel. And then again, there is like, there are two sides of it. Because firstly, it was a very successful model or it seemed to be very successful. And currently more and more private companies are also getting into this and starting their own accelerators or rolling out some other programs to scout for new solutions for new business models for startups in general so how do you think this thing is going i mean how wh where is it moving uh does it does it even work now for the private companies to support all this thing in like more broad way i mean like open the accelerator to just randomly look for different solutions or should maybe just they, they just turn into corporate VCs, corporate venture venture capital funds, right? And just you know um, look for some particular solutions and work only with them. How do you see these private sector supports to the ecosystems? Where does it work? Where it doesn't work? And what can be next? Yeah, what can be next? I think that's that's a really big question. Uh, I, I do think that there's different models that have been tried in the last few years from what I've seen in, in at least in the European ecosystem. Um, and the, the corporates have a huge interest and, and upside to be involved with the European uh, startup ecosystem. So I think we've seen a lot of corporations realize that their R&D departments cannot solve every challenge that they have that there's teams of very talented founders that are coming up with uh, technologies and innovations that would take years to develop in-house within big corporates, and that can be much faster iterated by smaller companies. Therefore, you know, the interest of being involved with them. However, a lot of the CVCs that I've seen in Europe, and not just from an investment perspective, but like actual corporate accelerators uh, that are supported by CVCs are not always very successful because they don't really have the right approach. A lot of them would just, you know, either try to be a company builder within corporates and try to take ideas and then build them into companies without the right teams, or they would take in early teams and then sort of try to mold them into whatever they want them to become and shape the idea and shape the decisions, which would also lead to a lot of startups dying or, or quitting on the program because that's not what they signed up for. And so then you sort of wonder what model actually works and what other things that you can do. And what I've seen a lot of our corporate clients move towards was actually a system in which they 
build challenges and sort of like think about what are the problems that they want solve and then look in the market what startups are out there that can help them to actually solve that challenge and then provide them with the tools to build the company but without taking a stake in those startups early on just sort of work with proof of concepts and pilots to see whether there is a fit at relatively low cost and then if there's an opportunity for them to sort of sign them on as a client and later on potentially invest in them then they would actually do that and it's been a far superior and more successful model because the startup retains their autonomy which also means that they stay more innovative because if they have the freedom to work with several clients and see various angles and aspects of the problems they can actually solve them better in the long run so i think we've seen that being very prominent and when you were talking about the names of all those corporates that have been involved i think in in the netherlands we definitely have abn amro uh, which has been involved with uh very recently with TechStars. they have a fund they invest but they also wanted to have the accelerator model where they would bring in innovations TechStars also did it with arcadis which is sort of uh you know the big um uh, sort of future workspaces uh company uh in in there uh, i think they also did it with semapa in portugal uh, so there's different definitely you know a number of companies that have been involved with various accelerators starter bootcamp is doing it with a lot of different clients as well over there so some of the big household names are partnering up with corporates to be able to bring the right knowledge of how to work with startups without killing them uh, and actually being able to build innovation i think it's still to be uh to be proven in terms of bringing huge success stories and, and really big companies that have come out of some of those programs. I don't think we've got enough examples of companies that were really thriving coming out of a corporate accelerator, but I do think that when done right, it can actually lead to good results. Uh, we just have too few of those cases at this point. All right, so still there is a story to write. I think so. And um... Just the last thing, if you'd like to maybe share a little bit about what you are working on now, if that's possible, or should we wait for a big announcement soon? Yeah, there's probably going to be an announcement coming up soon. I mean, what I can say is that the next challenge I'll pick up is definitely going to be still within the tech and the startup ecosystem, and most likely a little bit closer to, uh, to venture and to impact. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in discussions with a number of companies right now, as well as helping a few founders that I didn't have the chance to work with before. So, uh, so working on a couple of projects and most likely announcement to come. Amazing. So you'll be like in charge of money, no? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Okay, okay, that's intriguing. I think more in charge of impact, that's, that's about Sebastian, <laughs> as far as I can feel. But we'll see. The time will show us. Very cool. Uh, I think this conversation was really cool and very productive. And uh, it was my pleasure to have you, Sebastian, joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed uh, speaking to both of you. Well, it was really a pleasure to speak to you again. And hopefully we'll get to meet at some point this year somewhere in this crazy world. Well, okay, all three of us. I hope that all three of us will get together this year at some <laughs> point. <laughs> and well, thanks for everyone who has been with us, who was listening. And well, stay tuned because for the next episode, we have two founders of startups from a surprise country that will probably not leave anyone, well, without an opinion. 
awesome. Stay in touch. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.